on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg and currently at this stage in my life, my employer doesn't necessarily hold and represent the views that I espouse on this year podcast, but hey, let's see what happens. Yeah, it could all change by the end of this pod. How are you, Sal? <laughs> I'm really good. Yeah, I'm great. Um, Centre Estimates has been on, so obviously I've just been like loving life, streaming um, Parliament in the background, sort of fist pumping in the air. There have been some good moments in Senate Estimates, haven't there, this week? It's been like, you know, blockbuster time. Yeah, it's been really good. And what I love about Senate Estimates is, and I don't think I'm alone in that, it's really good when we see um, elected political leaders working together for something. It's very rare nowadays to see sort of like bipartisan work, but in Senate Estimates, there is sometimes and only sometimes sort of cross-party interrogation of a head of a department or someone who's been hauled in front of estimates. And it's actually quite cool. Oh my God, I'm such a nerd. I'm listening to myself <laughs> speaking. But it's it's actually quite cool seeing these senators do their thing that they do well and kind of tag team with each other to be like... Just to beat up on a bureaucrat. Yeah. Yeah, get him. <laughs> get him. Um, Those people that do what we ask them to. I love it too. I just like getting... I watch the highlights. Unlike you, I'm not watching you know, play-by-play play every game. That's not my thing. But I do like the highlights. I like the highlights of the late-night sessions because they're usually cranky and tired and the veil slips a little bit and you get a bit of angry sort of dismissive Penny Wong action. Mm. You used to get a bit of Barnaby after a couple of glasses of red, <laughs> um, slumped in a chair, scowling, a little bit of eye-rolling, a bit of side-eye. It, it was endlessly entertaining. Mm. Is there an emerging star in the Senate Estimates world? I really love Senator Murray Watt in Estimates. I think he's like killer. I th- yeah, he's really great. And I, I love those late night sessions where they've like had to push through lunch and then push through dinner. So everyone's starving and sort of slightly deranged. And so they've given them food in the room. So like <laughs> while whichever senator is, you know, like Kimberly Kitching is like, I just need to understand. Hold on. No, 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 no. Like what I need to understand with this big smile on her face, like picking holes in someone's argument. You can also hear like the clinking of cutlery and sort of like people chewing in the <laughs> background. It's great. It's like dinner and a show. Don't speak with your mouthful at Senate Essence. Uh, yeah, it is. It must be terrifying for the poor buggers that have to actually go and front the Senate Estimates because the later you go into the night, if you're sitting out there and you're a, you work for one of the big departments and you're there for hours and go, oh, this is going to be bad. I mean, I've been here three hours. It's now past nine o'clock. They've probably into their, you know, probably their aperitifs by now. They're going to be a bit cranky and you just get smacked around the head by an indignant senator uh, with a raft of questions. That's got to be a hard way to earn a living. Yeah. Do you think you and I will ever get pulled in front of Senate estimates for this podcast? I know you want to. <laughs> It's your dream. They'll be like, we have the transcript right here. <laughs> and you said. That you- well, you are, we've already discussed this in previous pods. You are setting up the Senate Estimates Awards, the best estimates, mm. the best of Senate Estimates, which I think we should, as part of on the job, uh, actually have a, a ceremony in Canberra after a Senate Estimates hearing. Yeah. And then maybe like I'll be hauled in front of, um, you know, the parliamentary committee into awards or whatever to be like, what was the process? This is just favouritism. Yeah. 
We can dare but dream. Hey, coming up on the pod today, a little later on, we're going to speak about a really important report that's just sat on the shelf uh, for over a year. The government has done its best to ignore it, but we will talk to Sarah Charlesworth from RMIT about the Respect at Work report released over a year ago, and the government finally dealt with some of the recommendations at a press conference last week, but left most of it in the too hard basket, and that's got a whole raft of people asking for more action when it comes to making work safe and gender equity more of an issue in the workplace, particularly after events of uh, 2021, where it has been shown in stark relief just how far we have to come, Sally, in Mm. order to change the culture in our workplaces to make it better for women to go to work, to feel safe at work and to share in all the opportunities that work should offer. And there's some pretty interesting things both in the report and the government's response, particularly when it comes to sort of like whether existing laws or whether existing awards or whatever cover this behaviour and, yeah, a bit of contention there when the rubber hits the road. And uh, just after this, we're going to speak with Mr Zelensky from the Australian Workers' Union, Assistant Secretary there. He's been writing some really interesting stuff uh, for some newspapers around how the Labor Party Party, the progressive movement, the union movement needs to rethink itself completely about how it's going to go about winning the next election. And a lot of it's got to do with how it sees and thinks about workers. Let's catch up with Misha. Sally, identity politics, the ability to actually frame a narrative for working people about what's in their best interest has become a really fascinating and difficult place for lots of people within the union movement, lots of people in progressive politics, because it seems that people are prepared to vote against what seems to be their own self-interest at election time, and and it gets harder and harder to get them on side. And that's one of the things that Michelle Zelensky has been writing, but I've been reading Misha's pieces which have been in the Daily Telegraph of late. He's the Assistant National Secretary at the Australian Workers' Union, Australia's oldest union, the AWU. He's got some interesting stuff to say around this issue about getting workers back in unions, back interested in in, uh, labour politics and back involved in actually trying to improve their lot in life. And he joins us here on the job today. G'day, Misha. How are you going? I'm well. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's great to be here. And uh, can I say it's also great to be on the other side of a podcast interview. Uh, So thank you so much. We must remind people, you've got your own pod. What's that one called? It's called Diplomate. It's a very bad, terrible pun for a very serious show about foreign policies. Is it diplomates like with the letter eight or the? Yeah, so like <laughs> is it yeah. like Diplomate. Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy? I love that. Oh no, no, sorry, no, 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 no. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I, the full title is Diplomates, uh, a geopolitical chinwag. Misha, you've been writing a lot lately about issues of political identity, progressive politics, trying to get back in touch with whatever the working class is these days. And I'm really fascinated to get your take on some of this stuff. So when we talk about labour and identity politics, where is the sort of working class and the trade union movement at with that stuff at the moment? I suppose the trade union movement, I think we would say uh, that we're much more connected to how our members feel. So that's where we approach these issues. And that's, I suppose, where I'm approaching this year, saying, well, here's what I'm hearing from our members. And then we sort of urge you know, the political wing of our movement, the ALP, try to stay connected to that. Now, where you ask where we're at is we're not in a good spot in the political context. Is the truth of the matter is, you know, Labor's won one election since 1996. We drew one, if you want to say, in 2010. So we've won one out of the last nine. Sporting parlance, we're not winning enough. And, you know, elections have consequences. So it's very important to us that there are Labor governments. I'm 
someone that believes in the power of Labor governments. I believe that Labor is a party of government. And so, you know, we need outcomes for working people. But clearly we're not getting it right. And so that's what I've been writing about saying, what is it that we're missing? You know, you look at the 2019 election in particular, the stark lesson there was that Labor did very poorly with people who lived in regional communities, people who had lower incomes, people who had likely to have not completed past high school education and uh, those that had more of a high level of uh, religious belief. And so we did very badly with people. And when you look at that profile, that is the traditional backbone of the labour movement. And so what are we getting wrong? Um, and how do we actually reconnect those people? That is the challenge. And I suppose the first point from my point of view is that when people sort of talk about, oh, why is it that uh, you know working people aren't voting Labor and why you know why are they being tricked? Well, I don't think they are being tricked. I don't think they're getting it wrong. We are getting it wrong. The Royal We, the Labor movement, the Labor Party are getting it wrong and we need to fix it. In the wake of the 2019 election, there was obviously a big internal review within the Labor Party that looked at some of the things that Labor was, you know, had in their control, which is the utility of internal report, obviously. There were also a lot of headwinds that were completely out of the party's control, stuff like Clive Palmer, stuff like disinformation spread across social media on things like a death tax, which is just like straight up not real. Yeah, I think it is very useful for the party to actually look at what you can control because things like billionaires spending lots of money, that's always going to happen at the end of the day, despite all this crazy advertising and misinformation, why aren't these people voting Labor? Is that right? Look, undoubtedly, the Palmer money that came into the election was outrageous, um, you know, 70 to $80 million, not something we've never seen before in Australian politics and something that we should never see ever again, in my opinion. It's undoubtedly the case that Labor... It's hard for Labor to win elections. We are a party of change, so we've got to persuade people that we can change and change things safely and that we can be trusted with the duty of government. But that also, you know, the ecosystem, the media ecosystem tends to be tilted against Labor. But those are things that exist. So we know that that exists. You're right, Sally. So then the challenge is how do we deal with it? Well, some governments are getting it right. So compare the Queensland story. Federally, we got smashed up there, right? But the Anastasia Palaszczuk government's won three elections in a row. And so people sit there, rightly identify that the one media market with the Courier Mail and has a heavy dominance of his limited. But notwithstanding their campaigning against the Palaszczuk government, it was returned. So what are we doing wrong and what can we control that's in our power? So what's the best model, right? My personal view is the Hawke-Keating government, which is Bob Hawke, I think is the model Labor leader. And I wrote about... Now, why was Bob Hawke so popular? I thought about when he, when he passed away, I went along to his funeral, I was lucky enough to go, and you know there was a deep, true outpouring of love for this man and this great leader that we had, a great Labor, Labor leader, and you know, he won four elections, which has never been done by a Labor leader before or since. So what was the secret? Now, my view is that you know, people love Bob Hawke, but it's a two-way street, and people love Hawke because he really loved them. And so there was a real deep mutual admiration and respect. Now, it wasn't pandering. Bob Hawke didn't pander to the people. He wasn't one of these leaders that said, there go the people, I must follow them, for I'm their leader. He genuinely led um, and he had showed courage, but he also didn't sneer. I think that there, unfortunately, are too many people, not necessarily in the Labor Party per se, but certainly in the Greens, but also in progressive politics more generally that say they barrel into an area. I mean, the, you know, the green uh, caravan into Adani into Queensland is a perfect example of turning up with solutions to problems that people don't know they exist. And you say, if you don't agree with this solution to a problem, you're not sure that it exists. 
uh, you're either an idiot uh, or a dickhead. Which one is it? And that's always a bad place to start a conversation, right? So, you know, my view is you need to actually have a, a genuine conversation with people. You need to hear them and hear their uh, anxieties about things and not dismiss them. You need to understand their lives and how they can be improved in a material sense. And it's about getting the order of priorities correct. Now, the 2019 election, you know, the review showed that we had a lot of policies and no one knew what they were. So we had sort of policy indigestion. So, you know, I said in one of my articles that we don't know whether hope beats fear in politics. That's debated, but Labor only wins when hope wins, right? But we do know, I believe, that fear beats an economics exam posing as a uh, political program. Mm. I wanted to um, ask about that point you just made and kind of challenge you a little bit, actually, about sort of the idea that progressives always want to sort of like sneer. Like the Bob Brown Adani convoy, I think, has been sort of like resolutely condemned as like a pretty weird strategy. But I think that example is two and a half years old now. I just think we should be like really careful and clear when we're talking about like progressives sneering what are some current examples of that because I don't think it's as easy to sort of point to something that journalists in the Australian like to refer to or people on Sky News like to sort of refer to sort of like leftists are so like elite inner city latte sipping and sort of point to that as the reason why working people are being turned away and and as someone who is super progressive and who gets described in these ways by like right-wing figures in media like I think I just I, I want to know what you specifically mean by that because I, I imagine it's not the same thing as what you know folks in the Australian mean right? It's absolutely not and I completely agree with you in the sense that this concept that the Australian or right-wing commentators are on the side of working people is a nonsense right? Yeah. So I completely agree with you. My view is that it's not an either-or question. I think sometimes we get dragged into this either-or, so saying, oh, to connect with working people, we need to be more right-leaning in a cultural sense, i.e. more racist or more pandering to outdated views or things of that nature. I don't agree with that at all. So I think that's really important, and I think you're completely right. But I do think there is a disconnect, right? What is the disconnect? I don't think it's an either-or proposition. I actually think it's an order of priorities. Now, going back to Hawkey, he had it right. There was no sneering, but there was no pandering, right? So and what I mean by that is he didn't say, oh, you, you've got these views, that's okay. No, he had an honest conversation and he challenged Australia. You know, he remade the economy, which was an extraordinary thing to do, a highly protected economy, and they remade that. But they also did enormous things that by today's standards would be uh, called massively woke or massively progressive. You know, if you look at what they did with Antarctica, fighting a rearguard action to protect Antarctica as an untouched uh, environmental wonder and getting the treaty done there. Or you look at what happened in 1989 after the uh, Tiananmen Square massacre, the immediate amnesty for Chinese people uh, that were in Australia not to have to return home to that. Apartheid, the leadership there, you know, taking on a challenge there that no one really wanted to do at the time and leading the Commonwealth down that path into you know, squeezing the apartheid regime. And then Indigenous land rights, all these things were done but they were done in a way that was collaborative. He was open, honestly detested racism, but he didn't look down on Australians. And he also, I think, got the order of priorities right. And what I mean by that is, if people in regional communities, people in suburbs, think that you're sorting out the meat and potatoes issues, if you're making sure that incomes are going up, Medicare's being done, as it was in the, you know, in the 80s under Hawke, economy's turning upwards, things are looking good. I think that can be a really successful model. 
But if we allow, and I'm not saying that this is what actually people believe, but if we allow ourselves to be positioned in these culture wars as being sort of antithetical to traditional Australian values or mainstream values, then we actually are losing the fight. So my view of it is that it's not an either-or proposition, it's both, but also I think that we also not need not take the bait necessarily because the right want to fight culture wars because they actually don't want to talk about economics because the truth of the matter is when you have an economic debate, when you talk about inequality, when you talk about wages growth, talk about uh, rising wealth inequality, uh, the lack of good permanent job creation, um, they don't want to have that debate because they lose that debate. Right? So they want to drag us into a phony culture war. So culture wars that are camouflage for wage suppression and wealth inequality are not in our interest. So that is the frame. But I don't think we then abandon doing things that are progressive. Absolutely not. We should definitely do the things that we want to do. But you've got to do it in a way that has the order of priority right. Your focus is um, on getting people's material concerns sorted first. And then you lead people in an honest way in the way Bob Hawke did. And I think people would talk about it because it is the perfect model and he got so much done. Can you be specific what you mean by culture wars? Well, the perfect example of where policies turn into culture war in Australia is climate. Mm. Climate change has become a diabolical political debate for Labor and the movement and it's become extremely difficult for us to prosecute an agenda there, notwithstanding you know, everyone would like to see action, I think, on climate change. But when we allow it to become a contest between people's livelihoods and the future of the environment and the planet, um, we lose that fight. And, you know, Scott Morrison bringing a lump of coal into, into Parliament's a perfect example. You know, we get sucked down that fight rather than actually framing it on our terms. So, you know, there are, there are a host of them and they look to drag us into them deliberately. So I think a lot of the time, rather than Seeing through it, we take the bait and, you know, I think politics is about storytelling and framing and we continually, you know, allow the prism of, the, of a right-wing prism to be dictating terms to us rather than saying, no, 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 that's not the fight that we want to have. We want to talk about it in these ways. The working people of Australia uh, have been wedged into low-wage economies and insecure work and now that's a perfect storm in lots of ways because it seems that people are prepared these days out of fear to accept a job, even if it's at a lower rate of pay, than a pay rise with where they fear yep. that they might lose their job as a consequence. How do we reshape that narrative so that people are not afraid of actually asserting themselves and you know, asking for better wages and conditions, asking for secure work without the fear that that means that their floor is going to open up from underneath them? In a word, trust. They need to trust us that we can uh, deliver on what we promised. And you I mean think by us, you mean, you mean uh, uh, people within the labour movement more generally? Both. I'd say, I'd say the labour movement, they need to believe that unions can deliver on what they promise and then also that the Labour Party will actually focus on those issues that matter, right, if and when it gets into government. But you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, there is this challenge, right, which is we know that job security is foundational for good life, right? So a good job means a better life. Fundamentally, Good jobs are the cornerstone, they're the foundation of communities, families, and livelihoods. That's where this anxiety comes from, two parts. Because, I mean, the first part is you can understand um, as the economy is changing, as there's uh, an imperative for climate action, people that are in secure jobs, often in regional areas and are out of suburban areas, go, I've got this good, secure union job. And they're not idiots. They see what's happening around and they see this rising tide of insecurity and go, I've got to hold on to what I've got here. This is what my family and my entire future are contingent on. And so there's that anxiety, right, that you need to deal with. And then secondly, 
how do you give people the confidence to actually fight for better conditions? Going back to my comments at the beginning, people that were on the economic margin didn't trust Labor to deliver. They, they were worried that Labor might do some damage to the economy. Now, when you're, now theoretically, they say, well, Labor had all these policies that would be in the interest of these people. But if you're on the margin, if you're just hanging on, right, um, and your life is really hard and you work potentially two jobs and your family is struggling to make ends meet, you haven't got any risk to take. You've got to be really sure about the decisions you make. You can't take a hit at all. It's interesting, right? Whereas when you look at the, the voting outcomes of the 2019 election, Labor had swings to it in wealthy areas. So areas that were going to get hit, arguably, by Labor's wealth taxes, etc., were cool with it in many ways. But people that were worried about what it meant for the economy overall weren't. So there's a lesson in that. You know, whether it's union organising one-to-one or on-site or whether or not it's talking to voters, it really needs to be a question of with. And what I mean by that is you need to be doing things with people, not to or for. I think it's a great way to frame it, with, not for. And we really appreciate you, Misha, for being on the podcast with us. Uh, we can listen to uh, Diplomates as well. Uh, on Just go to search your uh, podcast platform and find that. And Misha, are you writing, uh, have you got a book in the offing as well? I edited a book uh, with Nick Dyrenfurth called The Right Stuff, W-R-I-T-E. I, I'm a big fan of puns, clearly. It's uh, <laughs> only a <public> collection. <laughs> but it's a book of essays. So, you know, I contributed an essay and I wrote the forward along with Nick. It basically has 30 essays from 30 leading sort of luminaries of the labour movement, you know, uh, local government, union leaders from around the country, uh, senior parliamentarians, ministers and shadow ministers at state and federal level. And they've all sort of contributed a different idea about, you know, what's a policy imperative for Labor? What is the thematic for Labor in terms of winning um, elections? And what should the movement be doing to improve people's lives? Good on you, Misha. Thanks for talking to us. We'll get you on the podcast again soon. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much for having me and uh, good luck with the show. Thanks, mate. Misha Zielinski there, Assistant National Secretary of the AWU, talking to us on the big picture stuff about winning elections and why that's really important for working people. It's On The Job. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. On the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Sally, I know that you were part of this, but the March for Justice just last month you know, it was such an incredible event. It's important, and we've spoken about it, that it doesn't lose the momentum that it generated when it comes to actually achieving real change. That's right. Unfortunately, there are people around the country in various capacities doing that exact work, like translating energy into like digital organising or community organising, political pressure, you know, like people around the country are converting that energy and I think that's really exciting to see. The government though, not so big on energy, not so big on action. Now the Respect at Work report that Kate Jenkins wrote and released a year ago has been sitting on the Attorney General's desk for over a year just gathering dust. They finally rolled out a press conference with Michaela Cash and Scott Morrison about a week ago, just over a week ago, uh, saying that they are going to enact some elements of the report, but the 55 recommendations have been noted, 
but haven't been acted on, which means that in terms of dragging their feet, they're basically wearing their concrete boots at the moment and it's got a lot of people really, really frustrated. So much so that the ACTU and a number of other organisations have got together to start the Safe Work for Women statement, which they outline a whole range of really key elements that just have to be actually implemented, not in a week, not in a month, not in a year, but now. And uh, it's been, you know, it's, it's time for action. Yeah, and it was really exciting to see some of the photos and some of the updates coming out from that sort of lobbying trip and that media push. Well, let's listen to one of the people that uh, is part of this uh, new movement to try to make sure the government does actually act on the report. Sarah Charlesworth is a Professor of Work, Gender and Regulation at the School of Management at RMIT, distinguished professor there. And I spoke with her just a little while ago and asked her why the government is taking its time on acting on the recommendations of the report when it's clear that there's a real urgency right throughout the community for change. I think that the government was simply ignoring this report. In many ways, quite a modest report. It's not overreaching in any way. There's no real radical reform called for. And it's drawing on now a substantial evidence base of both the that we have now in Australia. And we're lucky in a way. This is our third sexual harassment prevalence survey. So a lot of countries, the only data that they've got on sexual harassment in the workplace is based on reports to either employment tribunals or equal opportunity tribunals, depending on the different jurisdictions. But this is the 2018 survey, which provided much of the evidence for the Respect at Work inquiry, has been incredibly important in documenting not just the prevalence of sexual harassment, which is extremely and depressingly high, but also its systemic nature. And coming out of the report, a number of recommendations were made. We know now that this report, which was tabled last year, simply has sat on the Attorney-General's desk for almost a year. Absolutely nothing was done. I'd like to say that this was an exception, but there has been a bit of a history with Human Rights Commission reports, and this is not the first one on sexual harassment. This is probably the third inquiry, apart from the Sexual Harassment Prevalence Survey that we've had over the last 30 years in Australia. And many of the recommendations made are simply made again in this particular report. That is that we need to move away from this individualised complaint model, which puts all the onus on the individual person who's experienced sexual harassment, overwhelmingly women, to actually make a formal complaint. Now, the process is pretty complex. And we also know, for example, from the Sexual Harassment Prevalence Survey, people who say that they've experienced sexual harassment, very few of those report, and only 3% uh, report to a human rights commission and we also know that only about three percent of those who experience sexual harassment actually made a formal complaint to the fair work ombudsman so we've got a system that's clearly not working that's overly reliant on individual women uh, making complaints and is simply not addressing the systemic nature of sexual harassment. So the government finally fronted up and acknowledged the report publicly about a week ago with Michaela Cash alongside Scott Morrison and they they did say they were going to do some things. Extending the time limit for making a sexual harassment complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission from six months to 24 months. Clarifying that sexual harassment is a form of serious misconduct that warrants immediate dismissal and closing the loophole that 
exempts parliamentarian and judges from being held accountable for sexual harassment complaints under the Sexual Discrimination Act. So they're positive moves, but what are some of the things, the glaring things that have been completely missed that the government hasn't committed to straight up? I just wanted to set the scene a little, Francis. In Australia, we're, we're a bit odd in the way that, uh, for example, if we compare ourselves with, with the UK, if you've been sexually harassed and that is a breach of the Equality Act in the UK, you still go to an employment tribunal and then to a conciliation and arbitration authority with your complaint. So it's seen as a mainstream employment matter. The way that it's been set up in Australia is we have different jurisdictions for sexual harassment complaints, which in the main have been seen as issues of discrimination. And that, I think, means that they haven't been taken as seriously in terms of when we're thinking about employment rights. And so while both the Fair Work Ombudsman and also certainly here in Victoria um, have made it clear that sexual harassment is a breach of worker health and safety regulation, it's also a breach of your employment rights, It has been a little bit grey. So I think that the changes that are being made are very important. But one of the recommendations that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner made, and this is to address the systemic nature of sexual harassment, is to give her the power to mount inquiries into particular industries or workplaces so that we know that certain industries, the media, for example, punches above its weight, as if it were in terms of the incidence of sexual harassment, also with incredibly low reporting rates. So it would allow her to instigate an inquiry um, into a particular industry or indeed into particular employers or companies or organisations where there is evidence of systemic sexual harassment or very poor management of sexual harassment complaints when they've been made. Now, that would be very clear to the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. When people make complaints, then these are made in confidence so that the public doesn't know the names of the companies. But my colleague Paula McDonald and I over many years have had access to complaint files, obviously under strict confidentiality requirements. And the problem of what are called repeat players is well known within Human Rights Commission. So you'll have particular companies who will have individual complaints of sexual harassment lodged against them time and time again. And there's no power in the current legislation for the Sex Discrimination Commission to go, right, well, obviously Company B has got a major problem and we're now going to mount an inquiry and try and examine what particular drivers and contexts are leading to the extent of sexual harassment. So just to give you an example, in Victoria, the Victoria Police, off its own bat, went several years ago to the Victorian Equal Opportunity Commission and said there's a problem clearly with sexual harassment and predatory behaviour in the force. They then subjected themselves to a, a very open inquiry by the Victorian Equal Opportunity Commission, which then came up with a number of recommendations for them to put in place to really address the systemic issues. And the systemic issues are not just saying it's not on to sexually harass someone. It actually goes to the issues that you raised at the beginning, Francis, issues of women's equality to actually have a look at how women are treated within the organisation. But the point is that this is an organisation that off its own bat said, please have a look and give us some expert advice here. And so that the steps put in place were a whole range of steps. So that's the kind of thing that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner had proposed in one of her recommendations that she could investigate industries and workplaces and in a way that this was through placing a positive duty on employers to actually provide 
a workplace free of sexual harassment. And taking an active, now, an active role in actually identifying their own structural prejudices and barriers exactly, and dealing with exactly. them. Can I ask you about one other really interesting aspect to this, which is we've seen yes. in a number of US jurisdictions that legislation's been passed that no longer permits confidentiality clauses in sexual harassment yes. settlements unless yes. it's requested by the person who experienced the harassment. Now, that's really important because you talked about organisations with systemic and deep cultural issues who just pay their way out of it and go, okay, we'll settle this, but you have to shut up and nothing changes. And we saw that with some big media companies basically gagging women from actually telling their stories in order to protect the reputation of those organisations. Is that possible here in Australia? Well, it's actually one of the recommendations of the Respect at Work report, and this was one that is being noted by the government, but no commitment to address it. This is a very important recommendation. Now, we know from research around people who make formal complaints about their preference for confidentiality, a lot of them want this to be absolutely confidential, but they don't want to be then bound by a strict non-disclosure agreement if they then later decide that they want to disclose what's what's happened to them. Um, And I I think that this is a really important step. And in fact, an inquiry in the UK made the same recommendation. And as I understand, there's a UK parliamentary committee examining ways to make sure that the non-disclosure clauses are removed, except as in the US example there, Francis, they're specifically requested by the complainant. We've got these recommendations, 55 of them in all. How do we hold the government to account to its sort of half-assed attempt to say, we'll look at the recommendations, we'll adopt some of them, we agree with some of them in principle. How do we nail them down to make sure we know exactly what they're going to do and those that they shy away from maintain pressure on them to actually come to the party here? Well, I think that the group convened by the ACT is a really good place to start. I think pressure is felt from many different sources. And as we've seen in Australia, there's a lot of visceral anger from Australian women about the lack of action around sexual harassment, around gendered violence generally, but also particularly around sexual harassment in the workplace. I think that the pressure has to be kept on by the opposition, by the Greens, by the independents. Certainly just hearing them on the media, they're certainly going to attempt to do so. You know, somebody who's been researching in this area for more years than I care to remember, it is pretty depressing that the same solutions keep being offered and nothing is done. And what we're seeing is not a general diminution of sexual harassment. The evidence is that sexual harassment is just as prevalent, if not more prevalent, because there are now different mechanisms uh, through which people can be sexually harassed, particularly social media, through texts, etc., than, say, existed 20 years ago. There's got to be serious and concerted attempt to hold the government to account. As I said at the beginning, this is not a radical report. Many of the recommendations have been made by the Human Rights Commission in earlier sexual harassment inquiries, and it's actually time that something was done. Thank you for talking to us, Sarah Charlesworth. Thank you for being on the job. Pleasure, Francis. Thank you. Sarah Charlesworth there from RMIT talking to us there about the Respect at Work report and a long, slow road to having those particular recommendations, all 55 of them implemented, Sally. I reckon let's make the road less long and less slow. But I don't know. That's just my Crazy talk. That would be my (laughs) vote. Okay. (laughs) Thank you very much once again. 
Thank you once again. Lovely to see you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Don't, don't forget, at Sally Rugg, the yep, Twitters. that's me. At St. Frankly is Francis. If you like the podcast, please hit the subscribe button because it makes us feel good. And give us a review. We love a rating because <laughs> your ratings help other people find our podcast. Go to your platform and uh, write a little review about what you like. Give us the five stars and get on your way. Thank you. We'll catch you next week on The Job. Bye.